right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time for that. Right? Let's go. Break it. Break it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's going on? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is Derek Johnson on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Got a show till 6 o'clock today. We have some guests coming on with us as well. Uh, KU football taking on Duke on Saturday. Kickoff at 3 o'clock. Pre-game starts at 1.30 right here on KLWN. I, I'm interested to see how much of a progression you can have from this KU team just based on some things that were pointed out by Lance Leipold last night on Hawk Talk. So, first of all, Lance Leipold mentioned that you typically have about 15 practices in the spring. Now, in the fall practices they had, I think he said 27 to get ready for this season. And if you just do the math of figuring, I don't know, every week of the regular season, let's say you have five practices, right? Monday through Friday. I, I don't I assume they're not practicing on Sunday. Like maybe they're having a film session or something. But I don't even know if they're practicing five days a week, right? Do you practice every other day and you have certain days in between where you're doing their thing. I I don't know how that all works. I don't know what the schedule is. But 15 days, if we're to assume there is five practice days a week, which again, I I don't know how accurate that would be. That'd be three weeks of the season. Well, guess what? It's been three weeks of the season. So as far behind as KU been and as far behind as KU was set behind the eight ball by the coaching staff taking over at the end of spring ball, that's the proof right there. That basically this week, KU would normally be where they are in terms of number of practices, where they would be in week one. It's not totally congruent either. You can't just say, well, they've had this many practices under this staff now as they would have had they taken over in the spring in week one because also you've been devoting time over your practices over the game week practices in the last three weeks to scheming up what your opponent is going to do, to scouting your opponent, to figuring out what's going to work, what's not going to work, against that opponent that week. So it's not a true congruent comparison because with fixing KU, so much of it isn't just about a better game plan for this opponent. It's about internal evaluation, internal fixes from the fundamentals of improving tackling to, you know, making better athletes with your strength and conditioning program. And all that stuff takes time. So it's, you know, a a week of, game planning a week of practice during the season isn't probably going to have nearly as much internal evaluation, fundamental improvement as you'll have in a week of spring practice, just in terms of that stuff. So again, not totally congruent, but that would make this week basically like it is week one. And there's a couple ways to go with this. One, it's just the continuing idea that, yeah, this coaching staff is behind and they're going to be behind all season long because no matter what, you're not going to be able to make up those three weeks, right? Those three weeks, those 15 spring practices, 
even if you're now to a point where you say, well, this is basically like you'd be in week one. Well, guess what? The other team you're playing is in week four. They actually did have the spring practices, and you're never going to be able to make that up this season. And that is unfortunate. And that's kind of the cards you're dealing with. The other end of this spectrum is you can view it as, well, if, you know, we think so highly of this coaching staff and this week upcoming would basically be the week to, as if they did have spring practice and would be week one, obviously things are never perfect and there's always a long way to go after week one, but you would think then that this week should show a lot of improvement from what we've seen over the past weeks, most notably what we saw from last week. Because this should be when you got the team ready for game time, about this week or maybe next week. And you add that all up with the opponent you're playing, playing against Duke, a team that this should be one of your most winnable games remaining, maybe the most winnable game remaining of the season for you. And you also, in terms of what you showed last week, the bar is a little bit lower for showing improvement, right? Like you can do minimal things and be better than you were a week ago and it would look like improvement. I would think this week right now should add up when you total that all together, the lack of spring practices, but now you finally maybe made up for those, even though you'd still only be in week one now as opposed to week four of Duke. You're playing an easier opponent. You're coming off a game in which it should be easier to show improvement because of the fact that you did lower the curve, so to speak. All that should make it so that we see the most improved version of KU this week. Now, I don't know what that means moving forward. I'm sure you could see an even more improved version of KU moving ahead. But as far as the week-to-week improvements, from week one to week two, from week two to week three, I think this jump from this week, from last week, should be the biggest exponential jump we've seen so far this season. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a bigger jump from week one to this week total for KU or or I'm sorry, from last week to this week for KU than you've seen from week one to week three in total for the Jayhawks with those extra practices. And, you know, getting beat up for KU, it goes a couple ways. On one hand, you worry about, well, is everybody going to continue to buy in when you lose by that many points? And is the culture fix going to be as easy when you're dropping a game by that much? The other end of this is, because that's the first time you, you lost by that much, can it be kind of a revival? Can it be an opportunity for some change internally and to look yourself in the mirror and, and do some things different? And if that's the case, that should only add to a well-improved KU this week. Now, obviously, if we're talking about what needs to improve, I think it's pretty clear. I mean, you could just state the obvious and say that everything needs to improve, and it does. But... The quarterback position has actually been pretty solid for KU. I think running back, you feel comfortable where you are long-term there with Devin Neal. Doesn't mean Devin Neal is going to be an all-Big 12 running back right away as a freshman, but you're comfortable where you are at that position group. Receiving group, you know, it's young, and we mentioned that before the season, but I still think there's some players there you like. And you've seen flashes from guys like Kwame Lasseter, who's kind of your consistent player. Seen flashes of Luke Grimm. And Trevor Wilson, L.J. Arnold, obviously, in the first game. There's enough there to like. Tight ends has maybe been a little disappointing just because of the lack of blocking that you've gotten from the tight ends. And that's something you're going to need to improve on if you want to be in this multiple and 
zone scheme offense, tight ends have to be able to block. So that's something you're looking for improvement for. But the most notable to me of looking for improvement this week, and I, I think I've said this every week, to be completely honest, but it's that offensive line. And when you look at what Duke brought into the season, they lost their entire starting defensive line from a year ago. Now, it's always hard to tell in college sports, like, oh, the next guy up, is is it going to be somebody who is even better than the starter from the year before this year? Or is it going to be a big loss in that regard? And I don't totally know the answer to that question, but what I can tell you is Duke is a little inexperienced on the defensive line. On the season, they have three sacks. That's one a game, so it's not like they're, you know, blowing the lid off it and one's by a safety. So the defensive line has two sacks this year for Duke. And I don't say this to say that Duke's just got an atrocious defensive line or anything. I don't think that's the case. But I say this to show that you're not going up against a team who has a bunch of world beaters on that defensive line. And you look at the pro football focus numbers, and that kind of backs that up a little bit, like they're just 83rd in the country in run defense. And, I mean, part of that's on the linebackers as well, but they haven't been good in that regard. They're just 85th in the country in tackling, which a lot of that is defensive line and, again, linebackers there as well for Duke. 82nd in the country in pass rushing this year. This isn't a defense that's going to, overwhelm you and mainly with that front seven and the defensive line so for the KU offensive line with everything I just mentioned about KU showing so much improvement the ultimate position for that to show both in terms of you need to improve and in terms of you have room for improvement as well as if you want the team to improve this position has to improve is that offensive line it's a favorable matchup Maybe not favorable because I'm sure Duke's viewing this as well. The KU offensive line has struggled, so we're feasting on this one. But favorable compared to other opponents you're going to be playing the rest of this season or that you have played with Coastal Carolina and Baylor. Go out there, have your best performance of the season, show those steps forward. Because we didn't really see a step forward. We probably saw a step backward from the offense from Coastal Carolina game, Baylor game, maybe that's just a case of the opponent because Baylor's defense is really good. That's not the case with Duke. You should be able to move the ball. And that's what you could have said in the South Dakota game leading into it. You should be able to move the ball against South Dakota. You should be able to establish yourself on the line of scrimmage. Well, you didn't. But here's another chance at it. Here's a chance to show improvement. Here's a chance to build off of something and start a foundation moving forward to get that momentum of the offensive line and, and the run blocking and the wide zone scheme established. And if you can't do it in this game, you kind of have a hard time believing it's going to happen this year. I know it's still just the fourth week of the season, but if you can't show those improvements right now that and I'm not saying this has to be the best week of the season running the football or with the wide zone, but you got to at least show some improvements at this point, given that opponent with Duke and that they don't have the star power on that defensive line. So if you can't do it in that game, I just think at that point you kind of figure we shouldn't really expect that improvement to come. And if it does happen, it happens. But this is kind of the target week that I'm viewing it as 
That offensive line, that running game, you have to show steps forward this week. You have to be able to hit a couple wide zones against Duke. You have to be able to establish the run a little bit. It doesn't have to be seven yards a carry, but it has to be better than you've shown in the first three weeks. Because every other opponent you play from here is probably going to be better on the defensive side of the ball. It's probably going to be better and have better athletes at the defensive line. So, while KU has been this far behind and they continue to be, maybe this is finally the week they can catch up. And if that does relate to something, you would hope, you would think, and you would need, if you're KU, that to come on the offensive line. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's, you know, washing all the germs out, you want to get, obviously, the germs out of your car. But also, you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's. Unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations. And there are a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. Most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. As much as we just talked about the improvement of the offensive line, you're looking for that, and it should be a good opportunity against Duke. I think in this game against the Blue Devils, this is a good opportunity for Jason Bean, and I I think Bean's been good this season, especially when you take into account, like, you don't have the best pieces around him, and honestly, it's probably a really, really good thing that you went with the mobile quarterback, with the quarterback that can run really well to help you overcome some of these offensive line issues and be able to make something happen on a play where you're dropping back and instead of just getting sacked or having to throw the ball away, maybe you can actually turn it into a gain running the ball with Jason being running it. But uh, Duke has been kind of hit or miss this year in their early games this season with pass coverage. Mostly, I mean, it's only been three games, so uh, I say this with a grain of salt, but uh, in their opening game at Charlotte, had just a 56 coverage grade. Against Northwestern, had just a 61 cover grade. They were solid against North Carolina A&T at 73, but it's not like that was a number that jumped off the page against an FCS opponent. So there could be some avenues for success. And when I think of Duke, this might just be like stereotyping and just thinking of all the like John Shire basketball players that Duke has had. But I wouldn't imagine Duke being a team who you know, this is just based on the fact that they're not recruiting at an ultra-high level, and they're more of a, you know, well-coached team, high-fundamental team. They're probably not a team who has, like, oh, this is the greatest athlete team in the secondary. And KU does have speed with a guy like Trevor Wilson. KU does have Jason Bean. Maybe this is finally the game that, like, we've seen Trevor Wilson. He caught that long pass against Coastal Carolina. Maybe this is the game that Trevor Wilson has, like, a 60-yard touchdown pass against the defense. He's able to burn him uh, behind the field. And also, they have struggled against the run. They were actually good in the first game. But 58 grade in week two, 61 grade in week three. The big difference for the defense was getting turnovers. So far, KU has done a good job holding on to the ball. Just one turnover this year. It was Amori Pesic-Hickson late in the game. If they can continue to do that, I think you feel good about what this offense can do to a Duke defense that 
you know, when you look at just the points allowed per game, 31 against Charlotte, 17 against North Carolina, A&T, 30 against Northwestern, that's only an average of 20 points per game against this defense. But I think this could be and should be, especially depending on that offensive line, maybe the most successful game of the KU offense this season. And I guess the previous barometer would be the Coastal Carolina game, bar none, when you scored 22 points, but were competitive in that game. Uh, this is a game if you want to win, you're probably going to have to score 30 points, but I think that's actually on the table. You know, I, I had a hard time seeing KU scoring past maybe 17 points in that game against Baylor. You saw why. Baylor's got a really good defense. KU's offensive line still just has not shown it this year, and to that point, your highest point total is 22. But I think Duke's defense is worse than Coastal Carolina's, and I think you do have a chance to put up 30 points in this game for it to be a game that Jason Bean has a big game, for Trevor Wilson to hit a long ball maybe, for Devin Neal to have a breakout game. I mean, they had a 44 tackling grade against Northwestern, and Devin Neal is a really good athlete at the running back position. So I think this game lines up well for KU, and coming into the season, I actually was picking KU to beat Duke this year. My thoughts have kind of changed given recent results with KU against Baylor and Duke beating Northwestern, who's a legitimate Power 5 team who we usually see in bowl games. That was enough for me to kind of change my mind and think that Duke's going to win this game. Uh, the point spread has moved up to 16 points. I've kind of gone back and forth on that, and I'll have a final answer for that one on Friday. just depends on the day, I guess. You catch me with that one. At first, I thought, oh, not enough. This is going to be a game Duke wins easily after what I saw against Baylor, but the more I think about it, KU should be able to hang around. They should be able to put up some points. It should be an entertaining game from a KU perspective, a competitive game, which would be more progress moving forward, going on the road against a Power 5 opponent and finding a way to be competitive. And at this point, I don't really think KU is going to hit that over one and a half win total that I might have thought before the season, especially if you lose this one and you do end up not even being able to cover the spread against maybe your most winnable game from here. But I think it is actually a pretty good opportunity for KU, not just to show the improvement that I was alluding to in the first segment, but to be active offensively. And if you can just hold on to the football, avoid takeaways, and get some on your defensive side of the ball, this is the type of game that winning the turnover battle might matter. Like winning the turnover battle against Baylor, it didn't matter because they were so much better than you. The KU could have been plus four in turnovers. It probably ended up still at that point 38-21 or something. But if you win the turnover battle in this game, maybe that is enough to pull off an upset on the road. And the last time they were on the road against an ACC opponent, you beat up on Boston College out of the blue. This one would be just as much out of the blue as well after you come off that big loss to the Baylor Bears. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Chiefs take on the Chargers on Sunday as they look to bounce back and trying to overcome that loss to the Ravens from a week ago. We're joined now by Josh Klingler of 610 and of the Chiefs radio network. Josh, the, the Chiefs lose to the Ravens and the world just seems to be collapsing. I, I mentioned on Monday how it's always funny with the difference between the Chiefs and KU where, if, you know, KU loses. It's just, okay, chalk it up. Whereas if the Chiefs lose right now, it's just like, man, everything is wrong. 
Uh, so what's your worry level about the Chiefs losing that game through two weeks of the season? You know, the Ravens, frankly, were due, right? I mean, this was a huge, huge game for Baltimore uh, to try to finally get over, in their opinion, the, the Patrick Mahomes Chiefs hurdle. So uh, a lot went into that from the Ravens' side of things. It's one loss for the Chiefs. Now, defensively, there's quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of questions, and, and I, I feel like they're valid at this point in time. But ultimately, do I think they're still the best team in the AFC? Yeah. So um, move on and, and don't get yourself in a losing streak. Chargers, big game for them, too. They're another team that they think they need to be in, uh, considered in the realm of the Chiefs. It's going to be a huge game for them coming up uh, on Sunday. And obviously, the Chiefs, if they didn't realize it before, are going to be everybody's uh, targeted game. Yeah, and I, I don't know, uh, obviously that was kind of a big debate with, you know, oh, should they have run the ball there, and how do you take it out of Patrick Mahomes' hands? Uh, honestly, I, I didn't really have a problem with it. The first thought that came to mind for me, honestly, when Clyde fumbled that football uh, and seeing all the negativity around it was, we've kind of seen this story before. I, I don't remember what year this was. It might have been 2015, 2016, 2017, somewhere in that range, um, where the Chiefs should have beaten the Broncos. And at that point, the Broncos were on a big winning streak against the Chiefs. And Jamal Charles kind of fumbled the way the, the win away uh, against the Broncos. And that Chiefs team was able to rally from there and obviously have a really strong season. Not that people aren't expecting that to be the case for this team. So I, I guess this can go two ways to me with what specifically happened with Clyde. Um, that This is either going to be in his head the rest of the season or Maybe this could even lead to an outburst from him. And while passing and, and Patrick Mahomes is obviously going to be option one for the offense, uh, for them to hit that top level of offense in the league, I think you kind of need to have good production from Clyde moving forward as a, as a runner and receiver. Now, I think we do live in a, in a different realm of problems. Like, uh, you know, some teams are wondering who their starting quarterback is right. going to be. Uh, you know, we, we dive into the weeds sometimes with uh, worrying about, you know, third receivers and fourth options and what have you. But I, but I agree with you. I mean, to get to the, get to the top end, get to your full speed, um, you know, it would be nice to have a complimentary run game. I don't think it's going to affect him. He's not a fumbler. Jamal Charles actually at that point in time was, you know, he was a guy that had coughed up uh, the football, you know, quite a bit and, and at times in some big games. And so, uh, CH has not been a fumbler. You know, Andy Reid has kind of pointed that out too. It was his first first fumble. Uh, the only bad part was you couldn't give it to him again in that game, and you had to wait until the next game in order to do it. So, do I think they'll force feed him early? Probably. Um, uh, I think they'll they'll probably make a point of you know getting him back on track. But I don't think it's going to be any kind of crisis of confidence. Now they're still got to show that they can run the football, and that's a that's a valid question. I don't know if they can. I don't. This offensive line we're into game three, uh, and and game three of NFL careers for you know three of the five. Uh, so we don't exactly know what the identity is of that offensive line and how well um, they can push this run game. So far, I haven't seen a lot of semblance of it, but also. You know, you got Mahomes, you got Tyreek Hill, you got Travis Kelsey. I'm not worried on a game-in, game-out basis how well you can run the football. But, yes, I would like it to be some kind of a complimentary aspect or at least uh, show the threat of being able to do that. And, and, and thus far, they, they really haven't. Willie Gay back at practice, and I believe he has to be out for another week. Is that correct? correct. But um, yeah. how much do you think he's going to help the defense when he does return next week? 
Well, you know, it kind of stinks to, to put it all on him, <laughs> just being right. like, oh, well, he, this is the reason why. Um, but, you know, the timing of it may indeed prove that out. Like, oh, well, he's back and they get it. I, I think this defense is talented enough. Um, I think I think Willie Gay does add, add a nice dimension. We've already seen Nick Bolton do that, too, of being able to run downhill a little bit more to linebacker spot and, and make plays. But um, it's got to be that front, that defensive line's got to play a lot better. I I Going into the season, I really liked the group, and I thought that they could play, you know, at a, at a pretty good clip, too deep. And unfortunately, they played at a good, at the same clip, too deep last week, which wasn't a great performance by anybody. Uh, Chris Jones can't have a one assisted tackle, and that's it. He's got to be a star. Um, so, I mean, I think defensively, they have room to to get better. And also, you're not asking them to be a, you know, top five defense. You're just asking to not be a 2018's defense. And right now. Through two games, they're 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 pacing worse than the than the 2018 defense, and I think this group's too talented for that to happen. Uh, the expectation should be that they should be better. Um, they they spent a lot of work in the off season on on red zone, and it hasn't panned out through two games uh, by any means. So I think there's the talent levels there. I don't think that this is a this is a talent issue. I don't think it's a scheme issue. I think it's just a little bit of a hey, let's do our job uh, type thing. And I expect them to have a, a better performance this week and, and moving forward. Again, they don't have to be. You know, it's it's almost like the running game to me a little bit, Nick. That um, if you had a great running game, this makes the team pretty unbeatable. If you had a uh, a monster defense, this team would be really unbeatable. Um, but you can still win a lot of games, you know, doing it with the uh, with the quarterback and and his his skill guys. I don't want it to be razor thin like that, like it probably was in 2018. Um, but I don't think ultimately when we uh, when we get chugging along that it will be like that. Yeah, uh, moving forward now, now playing the Chargers, how do you think they match up on that side of the ball with the Chargers offense that hasn't necessarily blown the world away yet and we haven't seen maybe that big step people were expecting from Justin Herbert, but do you think this is kind of a get-right game for them and, and what happens if it's not? Yeah, there it is interesting because uh, their problem right now is is red zone offense. Well, and the, hopefully the cure for, for that <laughs> isn't facing a terrible red zone Chiefs defense, right? Um, Justin Herbert's moved the ball. They've put up a bunch of yards. They just haven't scored a lot of touchdowns as a result. A couple of touchdowns taken off the board last week and and uh, settling for a lot of field goals. And so they've had just a scoring uh, a scoring issue. So they they moved the football. Um, if that trend continues, they're going to be able to score enough points to beat the Chiefs. But if they're, uh, you know, finding success against the Chiefs defense, then uh, maybe they have an opportunity to be, to be right there in it. Defensively, uh, I don't know if they, they have enough. Yeah, they're pretty beat up on the defensive side as well. Um, this week's injury report does not look good. So we'll see if, as move, moving forward, if, you know, closer to, to game time, if they, they get a little bit healthier on the defensive side of things. But, you know, they're, they're a team that's, that's chasing the Chiefs. And, and I know Andy Reid puts an emphasis on division games as well, and he's been awesome against the division. And so, um, you know, there may be a little bit of extra vinegar. Um, you know, the Chargers had put out, you know, during the offseason a, a video montage of them against the Chiefs. And um, they were really highlighting the fact that they beat them in the final week of the regular season last year. And I thought – well, that's pretty bold considering they played a bunch of the backups. So Justin Herbert beat the Chiefs backups at Arrowhead. He didn't beat the Chiefs first team with a, a, a full stadium of fans um, you know, early on in the season. So this is a big game ahead for the Chargers as well. Um, if the Chiefs, obviously, if they do lose it, they put themselves at 1-2, and two and we will definitely all be freaking out. Um, but uh, if they win this game, and I, I think they will, you'll still see that, that they can put the stiff arm on the rest of the division for now.
Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's the avoid the freak out game uh, for this one for the Chiefs. Uh, we heard from you know Andy Reid and some of the coaches this week uh, talking about the lack of tackling from the defense and how it was a motivation thing. And I go back and forth on that. On one hand, maybe it does take you know a loss like that to the Ravens to kind of get back into gear. But the other part of me sits there, and when I hear that, I go, "What? Wait, what do you mean you weren't motivated? You just come off a Super Bowl loss. It's only the second week of the season. You're playing on uh, Sunday Night Football against a really good opponent. You've played two teams who are playoff teams. What do you mean there's no motivation? Yeah." I, I think that might be another reason the Chiefs defense plays better this week. It was disappointed dad after the game, right? I mean, Andy Reid doesn't like finger point a lot, and he doesn't. He takes a lot of the blame himself, and he doesn't reveal a lot of things. And he mentioned, you know, getting off blocks and making tackles several times in the postgame Sunday, came back Monday and said the same thing again. And that's about as close as you can get to him that you can, you can see he's, he's, disappointed or upset about something. And so I thought that said a lot that he's calling this defense out uh, as much as Andy Reid will in a, in a, in a public setting. And so it's interesting. The, the, the missed assignments that that were talked about after the game as well. I I think that, you know, I'm guessing this is going to be a a get right type moment for the chiefs defense might be tough against Herbert to be able to do that. Certainly you got to get better in the run game. First off, don't get pushed off the ball and then have a little pride. I think that the, that uh, having a, a game like that this early might not have been the worst thing in the world. But, yeah, I'm with you. It's hard to fathom that that early in the season with that big a game, we're kind of questioning, uh, you know, motivation and, and those types of things. It wasn't, it wasn't scheme. It wasn't injuries. It was seemingly like heart and toughness that were being called out. And so um, I expect this defense probably heard those same messages and probably heard a different type of message in practice this week, and hopefully they'll respond. I don't know how much you remember from the game that was in L.A. last season because, as you mentioned, the Chiefs were kind of just playing the backups in in that Week 17 game. But the one in L.A. was the overtime game, and Mm -hmm. I remember that being a game afterwards talking about, well, we saw from the 49ers, and this is the recipe for as much success as you can have against the Chiefs from a defensive perspective. Have a Bosa brother on the defensive line, dominate with the D-line by only rushing four and sitting back in coverage, and Hope for the best from there. Uh, Now Derwin James is back to the Chargers defense as well. Are you expecting this to be a little bit tougher game for the Chiefs offense versus the Chargers defense? And do you think there might be something there with what the Chargers did a season ago to what works well against the Chiefs? Or do you think it's more about, you know, you just got to kind of hope the Chiefs offense is off that day? Well, I, I do like that approach, though. And if you can get home with four, I think that's great anytime, right? Um the Ravens are the opposite. They blitz a lot. And we saw them not blitz as much last week and had some success uh, at times in doing that. They blitzed one full drive, and then he, Mahomes scorched them for a touchdown. So I do think that that is the best recipe. If you can get home with four, create enough pressure, and then be able to sit back with the other seven and, and guard whoever's out in traffic, I think it's a great recipe. Again, the health question, to me, the injury report doesn't look great for the for the Chargers. Bosa's on there with a did not practice. Uh, James is on there with a did not practice. I'm not hearing a great um, opera, you know, um, uh, 
Uh, great faith that that, uh, that uh, Chris Harris is going to be available for the uh, for the Chargers either. So some big components of that defense are still a little bit banged up. So um, we'll see the formula pretty good. And then uh, on the flip side, I mean that that game's still incredible to think that that Justin Herbert did what he did with like zero preparation, and obviously that was a launching pad for him as well. So um, you know his his one matchup against the ones looked pretty good, right? Uh, maybe the maybe the best thing ever is just to get that tap and not have that whole week of of of, of preparation. <laughs> you know, you prepare as the backup and then be thrust into action. That part of it's still amazing to me of that first matchup. Um, if if not for a you know a a punctured lung by a by a trainer, um, I don't know if we'd be talking about Justin Herbert versus Patrick Mahomes this week. You might because there's always that pressure to finally play. But boy, that door was opened in a weird way for Herbert last year against the Chiefs. He's Josh Klingler. You can hear him on the call of the game on Sunday on the Chiefs Radio Network, and uh, you can hear him on 610 as well. Josh, thank you so much for the time, and uh, have a good call this weekend. Yeah, nerdy, but I'm glad there's a noon game. I'm like, I like get to get to football sometimes, you know that 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 wait. I, I don't like that wait of, of a, a late game or a, or a night game. I'm 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 glad to get an earlier an earlier game in. Let's get to the field and play some football. It'll be fun. Yeah, the first twelve o'clock game. Josh, thanks again for the time, man. You bet. All right, that's Josh Klingler joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk FM 1017-1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Normally, David Lesky of Inside the Crown joins us on Mondays, but doubleheader for the Royals did away with the show, and now we're joined by David Lesky of Inside the Crown. Almost feels like a second All-Star break because the Royals haven't played in, it'll now be a couple days. They had the postponed game yesterday, off day tonight. Uh, so, David, I guess the positive here is, is this a new record for the Royals? Two straight days where the Royals have not given up a run in the first inning. Do we pop the champagne now or this weekend? Um, I think we have to wait one more day, so we'll, we'll see how they do tomorrow. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, so far, the, this is the best the staff has looked in a while these last couple of days. So it's uh, it, it's uh, it, it's good to see them not give up any runs. But honestly, like these two days off, I, you know, there's what eleven games left? Is it ten games left? Um, whatever it is, they're at a good time because I think the young pitchers are kind of hitting a bit of a wall. And just to be able to move some guys around, like Bubich was supposed to go tomorrow, and now he's going Sunday. Um, I think mean, it's a good thing. I think it's helpful. I also think it's good for Salvi. He gets a couple of days off. Um, we can get energized for those last few games and, and hopefully hit four more home runs and, and get to 50 and all that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's as good a time as it can be when you only have a handful of games left. Yeah, the reason, I mean, you have Daniel Lynch giving up runs in the first inning, and that's just been kind of, a uh, thing for the Royals. They're, they're 29th in the MLB and runs allowed per game in the first inning. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that get chalked up to young pitching, a, a bad game plan, just bad luck, or, or what do you view that as? I think it's young pitching. Um, the reason I say that, well, some of it's a small sample, too. Um, you know, there's only 152 first innings, so uh, that's, not, that's not that many. It's, it's almost a season's worth, but for Right, that's pitcher, only, what, 19 games or something like that? Right. It's not, it's, 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 you know, it is what it is, what it is in that regard. But then I look back to, and like last year they were better in the first and other innings in 18 and 19, there was no discernible difference in the first innings in 2017. They were better. So they haven't been this bad in the first innings in 2016, which kind of makes me think it's probably some just random noise, but I also think that there's something to do with the young pitching. You know, there's, there's a uh, pitching going from triple a or double a in the case of John Heasley 
um, or single A in the case of Carlos Hernandez um, and, and Bubich too. There, there, there's a there's a huge jump to the major leagues, and the way you prepare in Triple A or Double wherever it is is probably needs to be a little bit amended at the big league level. Um, you know, some pitchers struggle at the start, and, and I think a lot. I think you're going to see a guy like Chris Bubich maybe always have some first inning issues no matter what, because he is a kind of a feel guy on the mound. He's got, he's not working with overpowering stuff because his breaking ball and changeup are both really good, but you've got to kind of get that, get everything going on that. So he might be a guy, and that's kind of what you saw with like a guy like Tom Glavin who struggled in the first inning. But I think for some other guys, it's just a matter of learning how to prepare better for a start, not necessarily um, bad preparation, but just figuring it out, figuring out what you have to do in the bullpen. You know, for a seven ten start, do you go out there at six thirty one, six thirty seven, and it's and it really is down to the minute like that for some pitchers. So, I, I think that um, it's it's a learning experience. It's not anything that worries me right now. I wouldn't say, but you know, if they get to the midpoint of next season and they're still struggling in the first inning, then that becomes a lack of adjustment, a lack of preparation, whatever it might be, and so. I, I think it's. I think you have. I think it's easy to chalk it up to youth, and I think that's probably a big part of it. Um, but also, like I said, some random noise too. Talking with David Lesky here of Inside the Crown on RCST. So Salvador Perez, as you mentioned, on the prowl, it's just a nice little a jolt. Maybe one day where he hits three home runs to get to that fifty home run mark. I asked you a couple of weeks ago, what would it take for Salvador Perez to finish top five in MVP voting? You mentioned, I think you said forty nine, fifty home runs. Uh, a number of RBIs, all this stuff. So if Salvador Perez gets there, where are you at right now as we're 10 games away to the end of the season? Do you think he can finish top five in MVP voting? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he will at this point. You know, unless he goes like 0 for 40 the last 10 games because the reality is voters are going to be looking for a reason to not put him in, the, in their top five. They don't, they don't want to. And it's not because he's a Royal. It's because the Royals aren't good. <laughs> There's a... There's a big difference to that. I guess I shouldn't say that they've been looking for a reason because everybody loves Salvi, especially writers. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong there, but I think that as long as he, you know, finishes up, even if he ends up, it's two homers in his last 10 games. And it's kind of crazy. He, three homers in 10 games would get him to 49 and get him the Royals record. That doesn't seem unrealistic, right? It's kind of the pace he's been on all season. So that it's doable. But even if he gets two homers and five RBIs, he's at 48 and. I think 120, is he at 115 now, 160, whatever it is. He's around 120. And for a catcher to break Johnny Bench's record, I I think he's going to be probably third, fourth, or fifth on a lot of ballots. I think you're going to see Otani ahead of him. I think you're going to see Vlad Jr. ahead of him. You're going to see Semyon ahead of him on some. And, you know, there might be a couple uh, stray Cedric Mullins vote here and there. But if you're voting for Cedric Mullins, you have to be comfortable voting for Salvador Perez. Exactly, exactly. And I I think, I think where you're going to see, like Mullins, I think is top five with with Orioles beat writers, and he's probably seventh or eighth on other people's ballots. So it's, um, I I think it's becoming much more likely, and and part of it is that he's getting to the numbers that we thought he needed to get to to get there. And you know, I don't know. Breaking Johnny Bench's record which however you want to view that, no, he doesn't have the catcher record, but he has the record for guys who spend the majority of their time at catcher. There's a difference, obviously, but to break a record by Johnny Bench, it's a special season. And I, 
I don't know. I, I just think he's going to end up in that top five. Um, I don't think he'll crack the top two, but he might. He might end up third. He may. I, my guess is fourth, but he may end up ahead of Semyon. Okay, you can you can tell me I'm stupid on this. This isn't actually like necessarily a thought that I think. It's just something that popped in my mind. Like, oh, this might be an interesting question. Um, what would the Royals get if they traded away Salvador Perez this offseason? And again, feel free to shoot this down and say it's stupid, but would it be something worth discussing coming off a year like this where when you're in your early 30s, you don't know if you're going to be able to repeat it? Well, I mean, look, for it's not stupid, um, first of all. I, I think that if you're a team and they are in their, what is it, fifth straight? Yeah, fifth straight losing season, below 500 season, and you have a 31-year-old catcher coming off a career year, and one of your best hitting prospects plays that same position, I think that that's at least a conversation worth having. Now, Salvador Perez is not a typical 31-year-old catcher coming off his best season offensively because of the value he provides to the city. Now, what, what he means to the Royals, this is a guy who, when I mean, you look at Yadier Molina in St. Louis, the difference, of course, is Molina consistently played on playoff teams in St. Louis. And the Royals aren't there yet. No, I think they can be there relatively soon, within the next couple of seasons, I believe, especially if they expand the playoffs. That'll make it even easier. But I, I, don't, I don't think the conversation will be had at all. But that said, if they did have it, <laughs> given, the, given the lack of catching around the majors, I, I honestly can't even begin to, to, to comprehend what kind of a package it would require and he would get. And I think – Ultimately, if the Royals dangled him out there, they probably wouldn't make a move just because they would ask for far more than any team would give up for any player. And it's because of what Salvi means to the franchise and the city. On the field, I mean, you're probably talking about, I don't know, two of a team's top five prospects and then another from the six to ten range and then probably somebody from the big league roster and maybe a little bit more. Um, I mean, it, it would be an absolute haul, and it—it's it, a conversation that they, like I said, they won't have. But I think they should at least have the thought exercise just to see. But again, nothing's going to happen. He's not going anywhere. He's going to retire a royal um, in thirty-one years or something like that. So yeah. he's going to be—he's going to just keep going forever. But to think about the value what he could return is—is is, is actually really interesting, even though it's. It's a, you know, we're ramming our heads against the wall because it's never going to happen. Right, right. It, it, yeah. And, you know, that's a whole other discussion. I'm sure most fans would say, no, screw that. Why would we do that? Which I understand that as well. But yeah. it's also, I think, good to point out that, you know, I just thought of this. I mean, that's basically Zach Granke. You traded him away and you got what you're alluding to, that big haul that ended up helping you win a World Series. So I think that's right. kind of interesting. I don't, I don't know how much you've paid attention to you know, online people talking about, well, is Salvador Perez a Hall of Famer or not? It's been kind of driven by this season this year, which uh, the season he's having uh, might be enough to push him in on its own. People who are kind of on the other side of things have said that, you know, well, career-wise, and you look at the career war, like it, it doesn't stack up to some of the other Hall of Famers. Uh, have you thought about this Hall of Fame conversation at all and, and how much you're going to have to talk about it in, uh, I don't know, 15 years or whatever? Right. It, well, I don't, I don't think 15. He's going to play till he's 70. So we got a little time. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I mean, I, somebody asked in, in a mailbag that I had a few, a couple months ago, if Stabby's a Hall of Famer. And th I, this was back in, it might have been, it was either April or early May. And my answer was no. <laughs> because, 
And at that time, you know, you're looking at a catcher who's in his, what, 10th season with 152 career home runs or whatever it was. Well, now all of a sudden he's at 198 career home runs. And he has picked up where he, where he left off last season power-wise. Um, he was on pace. If, they played, if he played 162 games last year, or 161, I guess, is what he'd be this year because he missed that one, he'd be on pace for – he would have been on pace for like 46 last season, 45, something like that. So he's picked it up, and he's, he's continued it. If he can do this for a couple more seasons, when you start to get into the 350 home run territory – because, I mean, we, I joked about 70, but he's gonna, I don't think he's done this contract either because this guy loves to play baseball. As long as, he can, as long as he can drive the ball out of the park, I think he's going to play. And if he gets to three, I think it was 325, he'll have only four catchers will have more than him. might be 328, something like that. It's around that number. Um, and then you start to look at, well, can he get to, to 2,000 hits, it's 1,000 more. It would be tough because you got, well, I guess it's about 900 more because you got to 1,000 back in uh, in that Angels series in April. Um, you know, he's it's not not going to be an easy track, but you start to look at the counting stats, and then especially this season, if he has that top five MVP finish, if he has a top three MVP finish, well, that's the, that's the big season that you're looking for from him. And so – eventually you start to look at this guy and you go, I didn't think he was there, but you look at the numbers, they start to stack up. And the other side of it, you talk about the wins of replacement on fan graphs. They, they calculate framing into that. And Salvador Perez is not good at framing. That's his, that's one of his biggest downfalls defensively. He he can throw pitchers love, love throwing to him. Um, I, I think that he gets a little lazy blocking pitches in the dirt sometimes, but he's when he is, laser focused he blocks everything he just doesn't frame very well and by the time he is in the hall of fame conversation i don't think framing will be a thing because i think we'll have an automated strike zone so i wonder are our voters going to say well why should we ding him for something that we thought was so stupid that we changed the entire game so i i think that that's probably going to work in his favor and at this point, if you had to say, is he going to get, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a hundred percent, but I had the chances at like 5% earlier this year. I think they've got to be up to 15, 20%, which for somebody 10 years into a career, that's really impressive because getting to the hall of fame is incredibly difficult. Talking with David Lesky here. Uh, so 10 games remain for the Royals in these final 10, 10 games. Is there anything that can happen that could sway how you viewed something or will view something headed into 2022? Um, not necessarily to sway me because uh, ten games is, is only is only so much. The the thing is, I mean, what we're what we're watching for on this team is the young pitching, right? And with ten games left, there's a start or two left for all of them. So, and and they're like I said earlier, they're worn down. I mean, this, these are guys who last year pitched at most sixty four and a third innings. Brady Singer had sixty four innings last year. And you're, you're looking at guys at 130, 140. I mean, they're, they're getting tired. Um, so I, I don't know that it tells you a whole lot. But I, I think that what you can continue to watch for is kind of the fight that we've seen in this team all season long. And people can scoff at that all they want. But, look, this is a team that was down 5 nothing before they came to bat on opening day and won. They had an 11-game losing streak and fought back, and they were three games over 500 like two weeks later. <laughs> we, we kind of forget about that. I mean, we came to the All-Star break just completely on, in, a, in the skids, and they've been over 500 since the All-Star break. I mean, th- this is a team that has shown resiliency both in-game and in-season, and so I just want to continue to see that fight because 
I, I, there's nothing they can do that will make me less excited for next season, but I think that they can continue to ratchet up that excitement if they continue to fight the way they have all year. And David actually, just with Inside the Crown, took a look at some of the players that could be on that 2022 team and, and impacted it. As I was looking through that, uh, one thing that is kind of thematic throughout the lineup, there's not as much power. And the way the league is going with a ton of power, it looked like there was a lot of, you know, if you're just thinking of an infield in general with Adalberto Mondesi, who does have some power, um, but Mondesi, Whit Merrifield, Nicky Lopez, that's a lot of contact in running. So... Do you think this is going to be a team that the Royals are kind of trying to zig when other teams are zagging? Is that a good idea, bad idea? Well, yeah, a little bit. Um, I think that's kind of what they did seven, eight years ago. Um, but I also don't know that it's necessarily a team with a lack of power um, long term. I think you know Bobby Witt Jr. has shown that he has tons of power. I think he's got 74 extra base hits in, in the minors this year. And that's not even in a full slate of games because they started a month late. So that's been that's been huge. When he comes up, I, I don't know. He, he, I mean, he's a young player. He's gonna take a, he's gonna take a minute to adjust. We even saw Wander Franco, who's been phenomenal before he got hurt. He was struggling for about three weeks. But then he got it going and figured it out. So I think Witt's gonna provide some power. I think MJ Melendez, when he gets up, will provide some power. Nick Prado will provide some power. I think to start, it will be pretty contact oriented, but. When you get those guys up, if they can do what they have done in the minors and what they expect them to do, then I think you're looking at a team that actually has a really nice balance and not probably a better balance than almost any team out there. Again, there's a lot of ifs with the young guys, but you kind of look at the maybe the White Sox as a team that they have Tim, Tim Anderson's. You know, he's he's the speed guy who puts puts that on ball and moves around. They and they had Nick Madrigal who. They've, they've traded, but Cesar Hernandez is, is, I don't know, he's kind of somewhere in the middle of all that. And Juan Mancada's got some speed, and they've got some power. And you kind of start to see that that sort of lineup. And then obviously Salvador Perez for power-wise. So I don't think it's necessarily a long-term plan to be slap the ball around and run, but I think that it's nice to have that element for when they do have some power, they can, they can score in different ways. Because, I mean, you see teams like the Yankees who are all power. They don't have any athletic. I mean, Joey Gallo is pretty athletic, but he's not putting the bat on the ball. You know, they, they've got they've, they've got it's, it's a power laden lineup. When they go in the hole, they they can't win. And so I think that what what we've seen in baseball is you really need both. And I think the Royals are probably going to start off with not both, but hopefully by the end of the year we'll get to having that power and speed combo and and be able to to score in a lot of different ways. He's David Lusky. Check out all his work inside the Crown. Subscribe to his Substack. David, thank you so much. Uh, as always, for coming on and being flexible this week. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. All right, that was David Lesky of Inside the Crown joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. We'll hear from the defensive coordinator for KU, Brian Borland, on the other side.